This episode of Sunday Night Dinner features Charlotte Langley, one of the chefs from Maya Gallus's new documentary film, The Heat, A Kitchen Revolution, which showcases seven female chefs trying to change the culinary landscape. To find out more about The Heat, go to redqueenproductions.com. Charlotte has a whole bunch of different projects going on always, so make sure to listen until the credits at the end of this episode to learn more about her dinners, canned goods, and other awesome projects. Also, just a warning, this episode is explicit. It contains some salty language. Welcome to Sunday Night Dinner, a podcast that cooks. I'm Suzanne Hancock. This guy I met in Boston a few weeks ago, he, I've been talking about this, this is probably super like hippy dippy or I like Hippie Dippy too. And he goes, you are full of Poe. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? He goes, you know that space where it's not black and it's not white? I'm like, you mean the gray area? He's like, yeah, but that's the land of Poe. I'm like, what the fuck is Poe? He's like, it's the land of possibility. Anything can happen there. You can make whatever you want happen in that space. And that is what people always are scared of being. The gray area is confusing. The gray area, we don't know what's going on in there. Black, you know, black is black and white is white and those are fucking, that's it. Anybody, people can tell you like all their opinions, they can be super negative and they can yeah. whatever. But you're like, yeah, but this is the possibility of this. This could be this. This is like the what if, but the what if at the posi- on the positive side. Yeah. You can open up a fridge that has nothing in it. It's empty. And people are like, there's nothing here. This is an empty space. And somebody else with the right eye that is looking in the right way is like, this fridge is full. You know, there's so much possibility here. And it's a great, like, life skill to learn. You know, like, I can see the possibility of this. Charlotte Langley is a freelance chef, entrepreneur, writer, and an inspiringly busy woman. She has a fresh prepared canning business called Scout Canning. She runs underground dinners in her house called Bibs and Bubs. She's a consultant, an organizer, and someone who seems to be everywhere on the Canadian food scene. She also writes erotica, food-themed of course, which may eventually become a cookbook. In an article about Charlotte in Playboy, writer Ivy Knight says, Charlotte wants to claim her sexual agency in an industry where women are often objectified and denied any agency at all. Charlotte's passionate about everything she does. In one email I got from Charlotte, she said, I'm the absolute worst to try and schedule things with. And she is. She's crazy hardworking, always busy, always traveling to meet with people or to curate an event or to do something with food. She's worked in a bunch of highly respected restaurants across Canada, like C, Café Belong, and Bekta. She loves feeding people well. We eventually picked a night and she decided to make pierogi. Apparently the plural form is not pierogies, always learning. They're one of her very favorite Sunday night comfort foods. It turns out she was traveling to her native Prince Edward Island the next morning to look at a piece of property that she imagined as a potential base for summer events. PEI is an island off the east coast of Canada. It's the smallest province, both in terms of land mass and population, and farming is the backbone of the economy. She was also going to continue gentle negotiations with the premier of the province to reopen a cannery in her hometown, Summerside. She wants to make it operational for Scout. She dreams big. 
When I arrived at the very cool house she lives in in downtown Toronto, she was in the middle of smoking some fish on a barbecue that she was going to can. She was answering an email from a potential client, and she was waiting for a delivery of sweaters that she'd lent to a friend because PEI was going to be cold. We stood on her front porch for a while and waited. So your, your eventual plan is to move back there? Is that your plan or no? I don't think I could, well, I could live there. It's very pretty and it's very lovely, but I'm a bit of a hyper kid and probably too hyper for PEI actually. So I feel that with the way the world works these days and the flexibility I have as a chef, I can really be anywhere. So Toronto is a great center for me and this house is really wonderful. I love. I can't imagine not living here. I it's love it here. Place. It's an incredible place. Um, so it would be just sort of like a place for me to go. Like I would do all my projects out of PEI in the summer and then do my winters doing like market research and product development in the wintertime here and events here. So a dreamer's got a dream. So yeah. that's what I'm doing. I don't I, I want to stay close to the island. You know, I miss by being by the ocean sure, quite a yeah. bit. And, uh, the, you know, like Ontario isn't quite as dramatic, I guess you could say, as the Atlantic Ocean. No. So I probably won't move there permanently, but you never know. Maybe I'm... Maybe in 20 years from now, when I'm still paying off this mortgage, I'll want to just stay there. <laughs> the sweaters eventually arrived, and we went inside to make pierogi. Is, is this your comfort food? Is this one of them? This is definitely one of my comfort foods. Potatoes, you know, that's pretty standard for me. And then, um, yeah, so it was sort of funny. When I was working in Ottawa, it sort of started here where... Um, I would, when I left a restaurant or left a job, I would always make a huge batch of pierogies, like my going away staff meal, and it just became like a thing, I guess you could say, where I just knew that, like, oh, you make pierogies, you make really, hey, can you make pierogies? So I just ended up being like the pierogi girl. Pierogi are dumplings that are made using unleavened dough and then filled with things like cheese, potatoes, cabbage, sauerkraut, whatever you feel like. It's Poland's national dish, and like almost any kind of classic popular recipe, the origin story is debated. Some think the original form came from China, some think it came from the Tartars from the former Russian Empire. The word pierogi first appeared in cookbooks and literature in the second half of the 17th century. Fun fact, students from a catering school in Poland were entered into the Guinness Book of World Records for making 1,663 pierogi, 90 pounds, in 100 minutes. Charlotte and some dedicated friends made 3,000 over the course of a few days for the Stops Night Market in Toronto, which supports the very awesome community food center that advocates for food security and offers a range of food-related programs every day of the year. And she'll be back there in Toronto on June 13th this year with Scout Canning. Charlotte peeled three large Yukon Gold potatoes and then diced them. The first step in the pierogi making process. All right, so what are you doing now? Okay, so... Uh, this is a very straightforward boiling technique. You're just going to throw these guys in some cold water, these peeled potatoes in some cold water. A whisper of salt. I don't put as much salt as I normally would in when I'm making like mashed potatoes or something like that because the amount of cheese I put in is like um, quite salted. So cheddar, you know, has quite a bit of salt so or a good amount of salt. So I uh, save the seasoning for later. Just a little bit. 
Awesome. Yeah. So we're going to boil some potatoes. We're going to boil some potatoes. And then while this is boiling, we're going to make the dough. And then the dough can rest while the potatoes cook, and we get set up to roll it out, and we start rendering out bacon. So it's all about, as a chef, as you likely know, timing. <laughs> I'm amazed when, when people do have that kind of, like, timing that is just beautiful. It's like a, it's like a dance. It is like a dance. And then you get, become, like, obsessed by it, and you apply everything in your life to this, like, well, I remember writing an essay in junior high school called My Life Ruled by the Clock. Like, I think I was projecting my future of being a cook. And uh, now it's just like, if it's not like, like all in a row, check, 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 I get stressed out. Do you? Yeah. I do, yeah. Like, it has to, like, you know, I get really manic about it, I guess. My brain is um, pretty active and excitable. So if I have a disrupted space, if there's junk or stuff all over the place, that's what my brain looks like. And I, I'm not productive and I don't work smooth, which is one of my mottos of life, is working smooth. So, every morning, I'm like, my routine is coming downstairs, putting on coffee, and while the coffee is starting, I'm like, sanitizing the counter, finishing all the dishes, putting everything away, changing the garbages, breaking down everything that's on the countertop so when I start prepping or whatever I'm doing, it's immaculate. Okay, tell me what you're doing. I am putting about two and a half cups of flour in here. You can use any type of flour. One egg, just for a little moisture. And then instead of, lots of people use, well, the recipe that I learned about um, from my friend's mom, who is Eastern European, she's Ukrainian. Her recipe for dough was uh, two eggs, flour, warm water, and salt. But then I started messing around with um, using sour cream instead of water. Oh, wow. Because... It adds That's a lot cool. of tenderness to the dough. So when you use just water, flour, and egg, it becomes more of like a, a really sticky, um, like a, it has a lot of stretch, like like way too much stretch. So when you're biting into the uh, the pierogi afterwards, it I find that it gets a little bit tough. It's easier for it to overcook it. It's easier to overwork the dough. So when you just use sour cream, it keeps it nice and soft. So like I said, pierogies... For me, I'm meant to be a yielding mouth experience. It's not supposed to be hard to eat. It's just supposed to be like pure pleasure. So I've got sour cream in there. It's about, I'm gonna have to adjust it a little bit, but we'll see how that goes. I am very bad at formatting recipes. I'm getting better at it. A little bit of that, that. A little bit of salt. A little bit of salt, a whisper of salt. And then in the mixer with a dough hook, slow to start. And then I can watch while I'm doing this, like, oh, I need more sour cream, or I need less, or whatever. What do you want it to look like? What do I want it to look like? I want it to look like pizza dough, basically. But um, not too dry, because it'll be dry and tough when you bake them off. And not too wet, because it's just messy and not, not good. This is looking all right. But this is the thing funny about home mixers that are smaller mixers. This is like a, an eight-quart. Um, often things stick to the side. So... It's good to have a handy dandy spatula to flick the flour in while you're, while you're going. It's looking good so far. You kind of see it like from my eye. It looks really soft right now. Yeah, it just looks soft. It does. It you know, does. it doesn't look like I'm making a crazy bread dough that's going to be really tight. No. It just looks nice and soft. It looks like that, um, that sort of molding clay. Yeah, totally. Can you do this by hand? You can totally do this by hand. I'm just sort of a time is money girl. So I can be doing this as well as a few other things at the same time because, you know, as a, as a sole proprietor of my company and a freelance cook, 
you know, I can be making whipping this dough while I'm like, you know, sending an invoice, doing a quote, talking to somebody on the phone about something else, mopping the floor, and I can like set this and forget this. So you can do it by hand. Definitely by hand, of course. Just put in a bowl, mix it all together, just bring it together with a fork or a wooden spoon. I like forks because you can kind of smash it through easier versus a spoon you're sort of, yeah. I don't know, it's easier to incorporate. And then uh, just keep kneading it until it's smooth. A little bit more flour. So I should have done three and a half cups versus two and a half. Okay, so three and a half cups flour, about... About two cup and a half. Cup and a half half of sour cream. cream. You can go to the recipe section of our website, sundaynightdinnerpodcast.com, at any time to look at the recipe. The thing that's great about this dough is that it's quite flexible. You know, even if you add a little bit too much, you can go back and forth until you get it. I normally would measure this out, but I I actually have my measuring cup is my cat food cup right now. I use it for my cat food, so anyway. Yeah, I know. I'm like... A little bit ratchety, <laughs> as they say. Is it ever hard to keep everything, all the balls up in the air? Yeah, it's really hard. Well, it's not that it's hard. I like the challenge, but I'm also highly ambitious for whatever reason. <laughs> and um, like right now, I'm working on quite a few projects at once, and allotting time between them all. Like you know, picking you know, 15 out, 15 out. 15 hours a week for each sort of, oopsie, scenario is sort of where I'm at. But that's not enough time for them all. Because like, I've said, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, sure, I can do that. Yeah, sure, I can do that. So it is a bit challenging. But this city is um, really good um, to motivate you to stay active <laughs> and busy and to keep up with the and to keep up with the industry. Yeah. So I feel I just, I just need to keep going. Just, mm-hmm. just like go, 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 go. So it is what it is. You get better at it. So this dough is really nice. I'm going to actually take it out and knead it a little bit on the counter here because I want it just to have a nice homogenous look. So you can take it out. There's enough flour. You can maybe take a whisper onto the counter so it doesn't stick. All right, so. Yeah. So now it's got this nice sort of soft yielding like you know it goes in and it's Mm -hmm. like oh i'm still resting and nice Mm -hmm. it's not too glutinous which is great so white cheddar you can use any kind of cheese that you like but i'm going very classic so i'm going to grate a whole pound of cheese because i can and then i do a combination of white cheddar a little bit of sour cream not tons and um cottage cheese do you uh when you were growing up did you have um a kind of ritual for sunday night dinner does sunday night dinner mean anything to you i meant more like uh supper we call it supper out east dinner is lunch and supper is dinner so sunday night supper was my father was since he was an artist he was home quite a bit um which was nice uh so Every day was sort of like a Sunday night supper. You know, he was making... We we had supper when the Simpsons were on, so depending what time of year it was because of um, daylight savings time. Sometimes it was 5, sometimes it was 5.30. We always had supper with the Simpsons. So he was he's a very good cook. And we would have, you know... He, he would do, like, Sunday roasts. My, my grandfather owned a meatpacking facility in Aging Court in the 60s, 70s, and sold in the 80s, but he stayed on for couple years to consult okay. so he was really and since he was into meat like he distributed like you know 
prime rib and lamb chops and racks and that sort of stuff that we always, my dad always had really good meat growing up, you know, so he always ate really well. So, you know, the Sundays, like, you know, Saturdays were hamburgers, Sundays was a roast of some, you know, with the Yorkies and mashed potatoes and things covered in butter. But then he started experimenting because we weren't super well to do uh, in PEI after a while, so we couldn't afford to have prime rib every week. <laughs> like, I don't think anybody can. Uh, so we, he started getting creative and we'd have like, you know, curried chicken hearts and boiled tongue with jam. And I remember eating shark a little bit, which was fucking gross. It's, what did it taste like? Well, it's like marlin or swordfish in the variety, in like that sort of family. Okay. But the thing with shark is that it has such a quick, um, it goes bad really quickly. It goes off. Oh, like, okay. it turns really quickly. And even though PEI has a large fishery, well, not that large anymore, but has a relatively large fishery, or did, um, they exported everything. So in PEI, you wouldn't be getting, you know, premium halibut yeah, yeah. or gorgeous cod. You'd be getting haddock, shark, and lobster, which, you know, is good, but lobsters, there's always lots of lobster. Uh-huh. So shark tastes like ammonia when it goes off, and it's gross. It's gross. So I'd be like, I remember just the smell of it being like, this is not right. There's something not right here. So I'm dicing this nice thing of bacon up, and I'm going to render it off so it's nice and crispy. So I'm making lardon, which are little, like, strips, basically. And we're going to use the whole pound. So rendering is done in a little bit of water in a pan on medium-low. A little bit of water. So as the water evaporates and sort of the fat clings to it so it makes it more crispy. Remember the 3,000 pierogi I mentioned at the beginning of the show that Charlotte and her friends made for the Stops Night Market? After the first 1,000 they made over the course of a day, Charlotte's neighbor, Jackie, showed up on her doorstep with something called a pierogi pogi and said, I'm going to save your life right now. So it's a, how would you describe that? It's a mold, a round basically. Mold. With that looks like it, yeah, makes it makes the how shape many? 24, 24 at, a time, at a time, but they're smaller, yeah. You know, lots of like typically Eastern European ones are much larger, like they hand yeah. fill them, so they're about well, I'm making like the size of a small baseball, I guess. So these are a bit smaller, but it's all uniform and efficient. So you can get these machines or these molds from raviolis, you know, you, so you like, put the the dough in, yeah. put your filling in, put dough on top, and just roll across, and it pops out. So you have like consistent, beautiful looking raviolis, you know, yeah. en masse versus hand rolling. So it's time savers. So she gave me this, and she's like, I have another one at the cottage. You can keep that. So this is the amazing. Pogi. The pierogi pogi. All right, we slowly rendering. Potatoes are almost there. They're about five minutes away or so. Yeah, so this is my crazy house that I do underground restaurant dinner in, in the summer, like in the backyard. It's a bit of a nightmare right now, but um, I do underground oyster bar parties. That's great. Yeah, and I work from home mostly, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. I was like, how can you do that? I'd be so distracted. It's super quiet. I listen to my Julian Nasralla and, you know, practice my global domination. <laughs> Charlotte's worked at some high-end restaurants, and now she makes fine food, but she does it in a different way. Cooking at a high fine dining level, 
uh, you need to practice. I need to work at it all the time, in my opinion. Okay. And like, what do you mean? How like, do you, how do you mean? you're every day. You're in a kitchen. You're ref, you're um, refining techniques. You're ch- challenging them. You're researching alternatives. You are in it to win it. Like, you are with it all the time. Okay. And I really enjoyed the challenges of making like anise hyssop bubbles and making shrimp crackers out of tapioca starch and you know the art of making bacon out of octopus like all this really cool super cool stuff but i found that the amount of work put in for the two seconds of gratification that the the food is for the person eating it was not a good balance for me Mm. i felt like i wanted to do more than just stand in a line and make octopus bacon and i wanted to I wasn't always making it. That's just an example. I wasn't yeah, always making yeah, octopus yeah. bacon. Like, you know, <laughs> I did lots of other things. Like, you know, whatever that may be, I wanted more than just that. Okay. So fine dining, I love eating it when it's done nicely. You know, when people are gentle with it. Like lots of people take think fine dining is having like 400 courses and eating until you want to blow the hell up, which I think as a chef, it's your obligation to feed people well. And that's not just tasty, but you're feeding them in a well, well, a well space where they feel good when they eat the food. They feel good when they're done. You're like, I'm gonna give you a 40 ounce tomahawk steak. I'm like, I'm gonna throw up. Also, that's a waste of food for me. Like, I can only eat about six ounces of beef yeah. maximum. Yeah. So with the fine dining stuff, I really like it and the little little touches and that sort of stuff like that. But I moved away from it. Potatoes. Potatoes are ready. Potatoes are ready. Yeah. Bacon's just hanging out Bacon's in that water. hanging out in okay. a little render and U.S. jam. Okay. Strain the potatoes. You don't need to save any of this water. You could save this water if you wanted to. I probably could should have or could have. And you could boil the progies in that water. What was your experience like at school? At culinary school? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I fell in love with it. Like, it was like, it was a surprise. It was a su- I wasn't expecting to like it so much. And as soon as I got in there... You know how when you like try something new for the first time and you're not so good at it, and unless you're really committed to learning it or getting engaged with it, it sometimes it's hard to stay on track with it. I tried this cooking thing and I was good at it. Like I was just naturally inclined to it. So when you start something that's brand new and you just and you start off with a bit of success, like as in, oh, I can hold a knife and I can put on the chef outfit and I can, you know, clean up after myself, I have that intuition or whatever it was, I loved it. So I excelled very quickly. Yeah, I fell in love with it. It sort of like possessed me a little bit. I was there all the time. Like, as a chef named Hans Andreg, he's still there. He's amazingly talented. Mm. And uh, he goes, I'm going to get you a cot. Like, what do you mean? He's like, we're going to put you a cot in the basement because you're here more than anybody else. And at least you need a place to have a rest. You can just go have a nap in this cot. It's kind of a joke, but... Anyway. It would have worked. Would have worked. So <laughs> the potatoes are strained. I'm just letting them like air dry a little bit. Okay. Not much, but they want to keep them hot so all the cheese melts. Okay. So potatoes go into a bowl. Potatoes go into a big bowl. Those okay. potatoes look good. Cheese. All of the cheddar. Take it. Take it easy. So when it starts to snap, crackle, pop, just turn it down a little bit and let it slowly render as we make the rest of our filling. So in the bowl goes sour cream. Cottage cheese, the, ch- the white, the grated cheddar. Mm. And you just mash it all together. 
Well, you know, incorporate. Incorporate until it becomes emulsified. Between first and second year, students do a restaurant placement for a few months, and Charlotte went to Vancouver to work at Sea, which was a renowned sustainable seafood restaurant. So I got to the restaurant, Sea, went the side door, they're like, welcome, I'm Rob, I'm so-and-so, I'm so-and-so, here's your station, let's start training you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Never worked in a restaurant. It was, it was pretty ballsy of me to even think that I could do that. But they gave me Garmanger and it was a seafood restaurant, so I had a huge ice bar and I had like shock oysters. We had a lobster sashimi dish on the menu at that time, which was the first time I made it, I was freaking out because you have to take the lobster tail, rip it off live, and then take a spoon and go in the tail. And like, you know, lobster tails are only like perforated and sort of like a knuckle. I just got, so you have to go in and get all the meat off of each section take scissors, trim the side, rip the belly, and I have a perfect piece of raw, live lobster tail, served with like cognac and a bunch of shit. <laughs> so, did you know how to do any of no, these No, I didn't know how to do any of these things. So he's like, lobster sashimi! And it was, I was like dreading the order. I'm like, I don't want anyone to fucking order this. So I got my first order and I was shaking. Like I was, my hands were, I was like shaking, like trying to do this because I was so nervous. I didn't know what I, know what I was doing. And it was such a high volume restaurant and there was so much going on that they didn't have a ton of time to give me. You know, they weren't with me like holding my hand. Right. Plus that's not what the industry is like. Yeah. You know, I'm someone holding your fucking hand the entire yeah. way. They're like, here are some tools, if you're lucky. Figure here are out. some tools, figure it out. And if you fuck up, I will let you know. Yeah. So I fucked up for a little bit, but like the chef Rob Clark, he's a, he's a feisty Scottish man. He would scream at me from the line. So he's like, the hotline's over here. One, two, three, four guys. Yeah, guys. A pastry catching was upstairs with the ladies. And me, the only girl on the line. First job ever. But, um, so Rob would be like, I can put out fucking six courses faster than you can chuck a fucking oyster. And I was like, oh my God, Jeff, I'm so sorry. But some people find that abusive behavior. Like, you know, he wasn't being like, fuck you, you're an idiot. That was how he motivated, and he wasn't calling me down or being abusive. Like um, he wasn't belittling me. He okay. was just like, "Come on, you can go faster than this. Come on, let's do this. We got these fucking tables to put out." And I'd be like, "Oh my god!" So um, I don't. That sort of stuff sort of motivates me. Uh-huh. That kind of energy and that kind of demand and expectation. He's like, "These are my expectations of you. Go." So I learned quickly, and it was an amazing, amazing, amazing experience. So dough has been resting, it's nice and smooshy. And I got a little bit of a floured surface here, nothing too crazy. I'm just gonna pat it out. And I'm gonna start rolling out. Our bacon is super sex. You save that bacon fat, we'll fry the progies in it afterwards if you're so inclined. Oh. Yeah, I know, it's not, this is not meant for like, this is how I keep my juicy figure. <laughs> so I also have a very funny rolling pin that's, is like warped. Everything is like, you know, perfectly imperfect. So this is the thing about the pogi pogi. I'm gonna change something for a second. You need to flour this pretty assertively. Okay. And what I do is I put it on top of my flour dough and then when I put the dough on top, there's flour around the table that I then use for the next rolling out. So it's, I'm trying to optimize the flour as much as possible. Okay. Without having to like, wow. you know, waste it or whatever. Okay, to be clear, you put the pierogi pogi on the counter, you put a bunch of flour on it, then you lay a thin, large round of dough that you've rolled out onto it, sort of like you're making a pie. 
Then you'll be able to see little pockets through the dough that you fill with the filling, and then you put another big round of dough on top, again, like the top of a pie. Then you roll on top of it with a rolling pin, and that action seals the pierogi, and then you can gently pop them out of the mold. There's a great YouTube video called Pierogi Maker, How to Make Pierogi, and the woman in the video is using something similar to the pierogi pogi. I know, this is like the best. The pierogi pogi, cup or patent pending from 1982. Sometimes they won't always, like since my rolling pin's kind of shitty, um, sometimes you have to sort of just trim it off. Right? I want a pierogi pogi. Who so doesn't? Charlotte has just tapped out tapped 24 pierogies. Out 24 pierogies. <laughs> so what I'll just do now is that you just want to look at them because sometimes if you go too aggressively, they'll, oh, you fill them too much, they'll pop little holes. But that's okay because when they hit the water, they usually just they tighten up and seal. Unless it's a giant gaping hole. If you don't have a pierogi pogi, mm -hmm. what do you do? Cut it out, cut out the shapes, whatever size you want. You can pick your favorite coffee mug, you can pick your favorite cutter, whatever you got. Yeah, okay. And you just, all you do is do it by hand. I can do a couple of those too if you okay. want. See, like three potatoes. This is enough filling for fucking 100 pierogies. Amazing. Okay, that's good to know. It's good so to know. Three potatoes, a lot of pierogies. Yes, so it's okay. about two to three pounds. So potatoes about a pound or okay. so, okay. that size. So I'll do some by hand. So okay. same concept, only. Okay. A classic pierogi is potato stuffing edge to edge, like they want it to be full all the way to the edge, but sometimes they get kind of funky looking, so we'll see how it goes. Take the side that's been touched the counter as your inside, because it's going to be the most moist, the stickiest. Okay. The most sticky. So filling. And then you just squeeze the edges closed. Boop, 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 boop. I'm going to use the pot anyway. <laughs> so I'm going to take the bacon out, see it's nice and crispy and all the fats rendered out. And see, we're good timing, right? It's perfect. Oh. Okay, so now so, what happens? Water is boiling, salted water. We are going to blanch some pierogies. Do you want to eat the pierogi pogi ones or the other ones? Does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. Um, salted, salted water. And then I'm gonna flip them into this pan of bacon, and then I'm gonna garnish them, and then you're gonna eat them. So they just, as soon as they float to the top, they're pretty much ready. And you can touch them. Like the dough, you want it to still be a little bit um, gelatinous, because okay. then that's what caramelizes in this pan. It's like the little extra nubbins of flour. So you're really hot. Okay. You hungry? Yeah. A little bit. I actually had a very long day of eating, but... Oh, you did? Okay. I'm going to eat some for sure. Okay, good. Of course I am. Good. Is there anything you miss from PEI? How quiet it is. <laughs> I miss that. Snow days, awesome, because nothing happens. Like, you can't even get out of your house. Well, it depends where you're living. I lived in the country for a while, so... We pay the lowest land tax at the house, so they always come to plow us the last so oh we'd be stuck there sometimes for three days so we had lots of canned food in the cupboards lots of scrabble and lots of uh yeah, i smoked a lot of weed <laughs> 
which yeah it's kind of fun homegrown or the nights when it's a storm a snowstorm outside and my storm windows are rattling in the wings it's like a very very windy province and that's it and you go outside and there's like about a five bajillion stars that you can see and that's it there's nobody else Thank you to one of the hardest working people I know, Charlotte Langley. It was so much fun hanging out with you. Go to chefcharlottelangley.com to learn more about scout canning, bibs and bubs, and all of the other events Charlotte is working on. If you're in Toronto, Scout is at Brickworks on Saturdays this season, and she's also curating a dinner series to support sistering called the Greasy Spoon Diner Supper Series an initiative that started in Vancouver and will feature the food of 12 chefs who happen to be female. Go to greasyspoondiner.com to find out more. The Stops Night Market will be on June 12th and 13th this year, and you can learn more about it at thestopnm.com. Probably the best way to follow all of Charlotte's projects is to find her on Instagram and Twitter, chef charlotte langley and if you're enjoying the podcast head over to itunes to subscribe and maybe leave a review it means a lot to us and if you haven't listened to the episode that features feist and adrian amato making south african seed bread and halloumi soup and talking about record players and recording feist's latest album pleasure and their cookbook pleasures the meals of an album check it out it's super fun and I'm going to be talking to Sukyun Lee next week, which I'm really looking forward to. She's going to cook something in her Instant Pot and tell me all about her new movie, Octavio is Dead. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>